The Great Improbability. This is part five of the audio drama. It has crossed my mind. There's so little time that we lived in the sweet forever. The Great Improbability. An autobiographical mystery by the people of Earth. David Sayer, author. Sis, I'm out of here. What's the matter? Jeez, I think Tom's got real problems. Last night, I got up to go to the bathroom, and he was gone. When I passed our window, I looked out at the beach, and there he was. Like he was just walking along in his shorts, staring at the sand. God, Deb, you don't think he's dangerous, do you? No, no. Not to me, anyway. Maybe to himself. Anyway, at breakfast, he was back to his moody self. We're going to church with his family, and then he has to go into New York, so he's dropping me off. God, I'll be glad to get back to the real world. One can move through the world in two dimensions, forward and back, side to side, and come to one's end sure of having covered the entire surface. From this summer shore, the world seems wide and free. From Ellis Island, through which Mr. Tom's ancestors and mine had to pass, it presents a narrow neck and few options. The island's children have experienced the deserted, burned-out shells of urban poverty, and the empty childhoods of rural ignorance and the cycles of violence spun from the illusion of difference, and these remain beneath the veneer of sand and credentials stretched taut around this sad and privileged family. That real world presents a different view, and it always awaits any misstep. Soon enough, I thought, Mr. Tom may lose his footing and slip out of the veneer and be lost in the world. For this one last summer, he is safe. Anyway, the facts are these. Thomas Cabot Brigham III had been recruited, well summoned, directly from the Harvard Law School to his grandfather's firm, fulfilling everyone's expectations. His genes had brought him thus far, but did not spare him the menial research and long hours expected of junior associates. His father, Thomas Cabot Brigham Jr., would see to that, even if the firm's customary abuse did not. There was, however, a special privilege conferred upon him, little appreciated by the young man but considered essential to his expected ascension. He was to sit in on important meetings— always present but never really there, as the English like to say about the Prime Minister's spouse. This privilege would prove more than he could handle. The offices of Brigham, Adams, Neville, and Knowles, called the bank by client and adversary alike, occupied the top office floors of the tallest building in the largest city of the richest country on earth. 
These offices filled the top floor, senior partners in the corners, conference rooms, and lesser partners around the perimeter, support staff and aspiring associates in the center with the libraries and kitchen and coffee machines. Two banks of elevators served them. One opened on the reception area with its stylishly worn orientals and grandfather's clock, where visitors were greeted with cool courtesy. The other operated with a special key, bestowed in small number upon the major rainmakers of the firm. Tom's grandfather and the other three men for whom the bank was named had been among them, but they were long dead and buried up in Westchester and had never seen the World Trade Center. No, it's not a trick question. The peculiar speaker will assure the graduates, and I think the answer is all of us. Let me try another one. As scientists and engineers, can we hold anything sacred? Is there something, rationally speaking, of course, to which we can devote our careers? with confidence in the worth and meaning of what we do? I think that answer is yes. Well then, can we derive it from first principles? The big auditorium will be quiet. The chairs are comfortable. A number of the graduating seniors will have fallen asleep after a night of parties. A School for Losers, 1978 You probably haven't thought about this. It's a lonely thing to be without feeling. Is that self-contradictory, an oxymoron? If lonely is a feeling, it can be experienced by itself. As though the feeling itself were lonely as though other feelings had ostracized it, sent it into isolation. Lonely can be endured as a quiet disquietude, a low-frequency background, a basso continuo, below the range of hearing, but present in all other sound. That was our beginning. Together, we're a double helix. I have lost track of where I end and Amy begins. Where she leaves off and I pick up. It has been a long becoming together. A concrescence. Curious at first, it became natural. We wouldn't be worth much apart, but we go everywhere together and we're a good team. Amy requires a wheelchair and a voice synthesizer, but she speaks several languages and has an extraordinary memory. I am agile and expert in programming, and we are both schooled in the two branches of science that contend with entropy, communications and energy. This has given us, working together, special powers of observation, learning, and processing, exactly what we need for the adventure we have undertaken. The media have given us a great boost. Irresistible story, I suppose an investigation that might shed light on the future of our species, a research tool linking human with artificial intelligence, a mysterious handicapped partner, access to some of the most dreadful and powerful places on Earth. The stories multiplied. 
only sensationalized by my reluctance to talk. I'm sure you've read about us. Excuse me, I should introduce myself. That is not easily done, of course. I am a work in process, less a being than a becoming. That is part of the story and much of our motivation. Okay, here we go. Try to pay attention. I am called David. All my early life was dark and enclosed. I lived mostly inside my head. Some days I still do. It's okay. I like it in here. But I know my behavior and my conversation are sometimes inappropriate, and I continue to avoid social engagement. I can't read people, it seems. I fail those tests in which one has to identify an emotion from a facial expression. I don't pick up hints. I can tell you what I think, but not how I feel. To tell the truth, I don't really know what that means. I can't make small talk. I listen to those good at it, and I hear mostly repetitions, obvious observations, complaints without evidence, trivial stories, simultaneous talking with little listening, and so forth. Well, you can see why I'm not popular. My parents, my poor, sad, innocent parents, are a shadow in my memory. I look at their photographs. Who were they? We shared nothing of real importance. Now I can weep, and as I look back, I do. Then I could not. Autism was mentioned. When first described by professionals, that dread disease was often attributed to uncaring, insufficiently nurturing parents. Indeed, it seemed to explain some of my symptoms, but it was not their doing. This did not matter. The damage was done with the word. Once they heard it, and I overheard it. They were stigmatized and broken-hearted. I could look it up, and proceeded to fulfill its prophecy. So I had life, but not being. To others, I must have been opaque, unconnected, without commitment to anyone, not a real person. I remember little of my adolescence, other than moving from school to school, developing a proficiency in mathematics and logic that left my teachers behind, thereby increasing my isolation. This isolation had the one advantage of focusing my intellect and attention on a single interest, that of mathematics and the programming of artificial intelligence. To this I became obsessively devoted. Mathematics expresses a deep beauty, the one kind of beauty I could experience. Some of my bipolar classmates slipped often into it, seeing all manner of patterns and correlations and implications, losing their grip on reality until jerked back by lithium carbonate pills. I was spared that loss and slowly rescued by the beauty of it. And by Amy. Let me tell you about her. Her given name was not Amy, except it was given by us. When I met her, no one seemed to know her name, and she seemed not to care. Nor apparently did her parents or whoever committed her to our school. She was alone, and I was alone. We called it the School for Losers. It was a residential campus for secondary and college-age students with high IQs but behavioral or attention problems that prevented their adapting to a conventional school. 
The staff referred to us in euphemisms, exceptional and challenged and supported and so forth. And the brochure was full of happy scenes and smiling faces and comforting statistics and testimonials, but we all considered ourselves losers. In my case, I didn't connect and couldn't pick up social clues and drifted off in my own head and often lost control and acted out my frustration. Most of my fellow inmates shared that last tendency. We were all bad actors. Except Amy. She could be overlooked, forgotten. And so she was, by most of the teachers and counselors and orderlies who had us more troublesome cases to deal with. And so she was by us. We had our own problems. Amy was invisible to us all. She was also severely handicapped. Her days were spent in an old wheelchair that squeaked and groaned when she moved, always with difficulty. And that was the only sound she made. Her limbs were twisted from years of disuse. I could not tell what she was thinking, or indeed to what degree she thought at all. Since she did not speak or act out as most of us did, she could be ignored, but she did attend classes and apparently succeeded in absorbing advanced materials because she was in most of my courses. Above her neck brace was a small, pale, round face that I took to be pretty, not having any definitions. It seemed placid compared to those of most others, whose faces appeared contorted much of the time in ways I could not interpret. She never spoke, couldn't or wouldn't, nor did she walk. Her wheelchair complained and rattled across the tile floors, so one could hear her coming and going, but not staying. I am as good at machines as I am bad at people, so the need of that complaining wheelchair appealed to me. I suppose I saw also, in that withdrawn, shrunken, silent form, a reflection of myself, perhaps an understanding communicant, even a companion. This led to our first direct encounter, which was not promising. I made my usual clumsy approach. My name is David. I have a diagnosis of autism, but it's probably inaccurate. Why are you here? Silence. Can you talk or communicate some way? The wheelchair squeaked and groaned and turned away with its occupant and rattled down the hall. Some days later, however, I was startled by a touch on my back. The wheelchair's pilot handed me a note. I have rejected the name my parents imposed on me. If you need a friend, call me Amy. I have no other. By this, she may have meant no other friend or no other name, or both. She was equating them as we were leaving Latin class together. Anyway, I did need a friend and replied simply, Nor have I. So it was, Amy and David. Though the journey seems long It doesn't take long To realize the song Always has an Here in the sweet forever Appearing in part five of The Great Improbability were Laura Messner, Bridget Abreu, Dennis Kleinman, Jean McDaniels, Dennis Johnson, and Dylan Michael Collins. Produced by Dennis Collins Johnson.